Well, it seems very appropriate uh, for Throwback Sunday that my uh, opening story comes from 2003. I had the joy of seeing Zach come to know Jesus. Zach had been a very deep thinker, had a lot of questions, and he wasn't just going to take the leap because he knew other young adults like him who uh, were following, following Christ. Uh, it, it wasn't just because there was you know, a church on every block. He, he only was going to do it if he was absolutely convinced that Christianity was true. But once Zach made that decision, I mean, Zach changed. Now, Zach was an offensive lineman all right, in, in college, so big guy. And when he gave his life to Jesus, he suddenly had a heart and a smile that matched his size. Well, Zach just couldn't help but tell people about Jesus. It just exuded from him. Uh, Well, uh, Zach, being that offensive lineman, big guy, after college, wasn't working out and began to put on weight. And he didn't like it. And some guys at work were doing a triathlon. So he decided, you know what, I'm going to do this to stay in shape. And so he starts getting ready for a triathlon, and when he suddenly realizes, he doesn't know how to swim. He signed up for, you know, to begin swimming at a pool. He jumps in the water, and all it takes is two laps, and he realizes, I'm dying here. I've got to learn how to swim. So he asks the pool, is there anyone who can serve as like a swimming coach? And they're like, yeah. So he pays his money, they assign him someone, and they assign him Aaron. Aaron was a young 20-something, and it was pretty obvious within the first time that Zach had feelings for Aaron and Aaron was attracted to Zach. Well, because Zach was a new believer in Jesus, he just couldn't help but talk about Christ. And rather than think Zach was odd for God, Aaron actually was attracted, more attracted to him and was attracted to this idea of Christ. You see, Aaron had made a bunch of bad decisions, some bad relationships. And so she thought there's no way God would ever love someone like her. And yet the way Zach talked about Jesus, he talked about grace. It opened her up and she began to not only be drawn to Zach, but she began to be drawn to Jesus. Until one day, Zach showed up for one of his swimming lessons. And and suddenly, Aaron's like pulled away from him emotionally. He could just tell something's off. Like here he thinks Aaron's about to become his girlfriend and instead, she's now pulling away. And so he starts to inquire. And finally, she admits someone gave her a book that cast doubt on all of Christianity. This book was claiming that there were different books of the Bible that should have been included, but weren't. That there was like this backroom politics that went on and certain books got rejected. And it absolutely wrecked the burgeoning faith that was coming up within her. Well, because Zach didn't want to give up on Aaron... He decides he's got to go read this book. And suddenly, Zach, just a few months into his newfound faith in Jesus, finds his own faith just being stretched and wrecked. And he starts wondering, have I bought the biggest lie to have ever come about? So as Zach and I were talking, I couldn't help but ask, Zach, what is this book? He says, it's this new book taking the world by storm called The Da Vinci Code. Anyone here? heard of the da vinci code okay a number of you have heard of it if if you haven't it came out in 2003 the author is dan brown this book was so popular that in its first five years after its release it sold over 80 million copies it went on to be translated into 44 different languages and they actually put out a movie starring tom hanks in 2006 the book is about a guy named robert langdon Uh, dan brown wrote a whole series uh the robert langdon series this is book two in that series 
And Robert Langdon is this academic. In fact, he's a symbiologist. He studies symbols. And somehow he gets involved in this murder mystery, trying to solve this murder that happens in a famous art museum, but they discover signs in the Mona Lisa. And they're, next thing you know, they're realizing that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. They had a son. That son became the bloodline for a line of kings who oversaw this dynasty in France. And also, there were certain books that should have been included, but the Catholic Church had intentionally excluded them because to allow them would be to take away the power from the people. They wanted a certain narrative, and so they excluded these things. And it just caused Zach and Aaron's faith to just absolutely crumble apart. Dan Brown was asked, where did this whole plot come from? And he said, this is basically my spiritual journey. He, he, he said, this really isn't a work of fiction. This is just a parable. It's just rather than a murder taking place in a museum, it was me studying and reading books. And he wanted to put it into some form to share what he had learned over the years. So that led someone to asking him about his religious background. This is what he said. I was raised Episcopalian and I was a very religious, I was very religious as a kid. Then, in 8th or ninth grade, I studied astronomy, cosmology, and the origins of the universe. I remember saying to a minister, I don't get it. I read a book that said there was an explosion known as the Big Bang, but here it says God created heaven and earth and the animals in seven days, which is right. Unfortunately, the response I got was, nice boys, don't ask that question. So my question is, why can't nice boys ask that question? Like, are Christians so afraid that there will be a question that will come along and topple the whole entire thing? And so to protect Christianity, we can't ask those sort of questions? If so, I want no part. I don't want to be a part of something that that is so fragile that one question can dismantle the whole thing. Instead, I want to be part of something that's so robust, we can throw any question at it and find it still stands. Now, today, we're not going to try to answer Dan Brown's question from eighth grade of which is true, the, you know, evolution, the Big Bang, or, or the Bible's account of creation. But we are going to seek to answer his questions about the, the canon of Scripture. How did the books that are in the Bible get there? How do we know that we can trust them, or can we? Are there books that should have been included that aren't there, or are there maybe books in there that we should not be reading at all? And, and, and if so... Does this mean Christianity is fake or maybe it's not quite as strong as we thought it was? My hope today is that as we look at the canon of Scripture, how the Old Testament and New Testament came about, it will shore up your faith. If you are a follower of Christ, it will help you to know that I can read this and rely upon it. If you're a spiritual seeker, that it would give you confidence that you could go and discover God by reading the Scriptures. So that when you then read it, you can read about Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection, and realize it's not some myth created to put something forward. It's a true story put in there to change your life. So if you brought a Bible, I invite you to open it up to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, if you're a first-time guest with us, uh, we've been opening up to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 every week. We'll do it one more time next week as we conclude this series. Uh, this has been our launching point. Um, if you don't have a Bible, though, don't worry about it. We're going to put the scripture up on the screen. Uh, if you're joining us online, just go over to that Bible tab. You can use that. Uh, if you have a Bible on your phone, feel free to use that as well. We're fine with digital Bibles at Riverwood. Um, if you would like a paper Bible, you want to go old school for Throwback Sunday, uh, we have some Bibles back on our uh, Give and Grow table um, 
the resource table, uh, please take one of those. That would be our gift to you. And we want you to use it when you come back on Sunday, but we also want you to use it on Monday and Tuesday and any day. We really believe that God has given this to us to change our lives, not just fill our heads with information, but to actually change our hearts so that we can go and be a blessing. Uh, as we get ready to read from 2 Timothy 3, 6, 3 16 to 17, uh, let's pray. So Heavenly Father, we now come to your timeless word. Uh, as we're going to see today, you have collected exactly the books you want us to have. You've put in here exactly what we need to hear so that you can communicate to us about this immense, uh, this uh, uh, incredible gospel. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd open our hearts and our minds. I pray for the, the skeptic that they would not just immediately attack these things, but be open. I pray also, though, that we wouldn't just accept things because, well, this is what sounds good, that we would actually look at the evidence and and see how you have collected together the Old Testament and New Testament, these 66 books, and that we can put our faith in them because really, it's really putting our faith in you. So God, would you be our teacher today? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, And for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, two weeks ago, when we kicked off the series, we looked at the opening phrase of verse 16, and we spent a considerable amount of time on just those first two words, all scripture. But what we did not do is talk about, all right, so what is the totality of all scripture? Because we knew we were going to do that today. The word that gets used for all scripture is the word canon. And not with two ends. We're not talking about a weapon that you fire, you know, lob some big ball across enemy lines. We're talking about the canon. It comes from the Greek word canon, meaning measuring rod or rule, right? It's why I've put this definition together of the canon. It is the collection of books recognized by the church as having divine authority to speak into all matters of life and doctrine. In other words, it is the document that God has given us in which we measure our lives and our doctrine too. All right? That's what we're going with for, for canon. Now, Protestants, like of which Riverwood is part, Protestants believe that there are 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament, totaling 66 books in the Bible. But why 66? Like, why not 67 or, or, or 65? Or or why not like the Catholics? They have 73 in their Bible. Or Greek and Eastern Orthodox, I think even Russian Orthodox, they have 79 books in their Bible. Or or, why didn't God just give us a nice, round, impressive 100? Like, why are there 66 books in the scriptures? Well, to discover that, we actually have to talk about the two uh, testaments separately because they came about in separate ways. And, And the reasons why we trust them differ a bit. All right, so let's first go to the Old Testament. The quick answer to why do Protestants believe that there are 39 books in the Old Testament? The quick answer is because that is what Jesus and the first century Jews believed. Now, the answer to that is actually a bit more complicated than that. And that's what we're going to get into. But but that's our quick answer, right? Because that's what Jesus and the Jews had. The Jewish scripture is called the Tanakh. The Tanakh is an acronym for Torah, uh, Navim, and Ketubim. All right? The Torah is the law, the first five books. Christians call the first five books of the Bible the Pentateuch. Believed it's written by Moses, and for the Jewish people, that was their law. All right? The Navim is the Hebrew word for prophets. 
Now, in English Bibles, our Old Testament, we have a section called the Major Prophets. So you got Isaiah, Jeremiah. There's also the Minor Prophets, Hosea, uh, Joel, Amos, right? And they're not minor because they're not as important. They're minor because their books tend to be smaller and shorter. But for the Jews, they also included people like Samuel. They saw him as a prophet, and so they included those. We put those into our history books, but to them, he was also a prophet. So when they talked about the prophets, they included some of those books. And then they had the writings, Ketubim. This would have included your historical books like Ezra and Nehemiah or, or different books like uh, the poetry or uh, wisdom books, Psalms, Proverbs. These, uh, the, these three sections were written over 1,100 years. Genesis would have been first written in roughly 1,400 B.C. by Moses, and it was completed with the ending of Malachi around 430 B.C. Now, the Jewish people also had a second book called the Talmud, but they did not think that the Talmud was in any way, shape, or form authoritative. They did not see it as canon. It was like a commentary about the Tanakh. So when a rabbi was writing ideas about what it meant, he might record it into the Talmud. And that collection then helped them to understand the Tanakh. Also, some of uh, like different rituals, traditions within Judaism were put in the Talmud, as well as some historical records. Well, apparently, if you read through the Talmud, you will see a theme, some recordings of a guy by the name of Ezra. Ezra wrote the book that bears his name in the Old Testament, Ezra. Some people also believe he wrote Nehemiah because Ezra and Nehemiah, those two books are very closely linked. It is believed that in 435 BC, so just five years after Malachi put the final period in his book, Ezra and this group called the Great Synagogue began to help determine what books are authoritative, what books are part of the canon. And they're the ones who helped to collect these and put together the Tanakh. Now, there is some debate whether Ezra and the Great Synagogue really actually did that. There's also something called the Ezra legend that I'm not going to get into. But there's some questions on that. But what there's not question is that when Jesus and those first century Jews come onto the scene, the Tanakh is what they had. And they believed that that was God's word. In fact, Jesus affirms the Tanakh a couple of times. Shortly after his uh, resurrection... In Luke 24, he appears to the disciples. They're in a a closed room. All of a sudden, Jesus is there with them. He begins speaking to them, and he says this. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the, and here it is, the law of Moses, the Torah, and the prophets, the Nevim, and the Psalms, the writings, the the, uh, Ketubim, must be fulfilled. Right. So in this sentence, he's saying, This is God's word. God breathed this through these human authors. Those three sections, the Torah, the the Ketubim, and the the Nevim, all of that together is the scriptures, and it all points to me. Last week, we saw that there's over 300 prophecies that pointed to Jesus, and he fulfilled them. The, The statistical chances of that are so minute, it's impossible, and yet he did it. And now he stands resurrected before his disciples who saw him die on a cross. And he says, guys, this has been written about. This was written about for thousands of years beforehand. And now it has been fulfilled in me. He affirms the Tanakh as the word of God. He also does it in another place in a very interesting way. In Luke chapter 11, he's having a very... um, Awkward isn't even the right word. It's a very harsh conversation. He is saying some really harsh things to the Pharisees and scholars. And in the midst of this harsh rebuke of them, mostly because of their uh, hypocrisy, he says this. 
Verse 50 of Luke 11. So that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. I, what, what does that mean? All right. Oftentimes people think like God's like kind of in a bad, he's got a bad attitude in the Old Testament, but you know, he's a nice guy through Jesus in the New Testament. So why is nice loving Jesus saying these really harsh things? Because if you didn't catch it, he just said that the blood of all the prophets, of all the martyrs found in the Old Testament, found in the Tanakh, all of their blood, the guilt of their murders is going to be heaped upon this generation. Okay, that's harsh. Like kids, imagine your parents saying, yeah, all the wrong things that your siblings did, I'm going to put them on you. Like, like, okay, wait, 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 wait. That's not fair. Why in the world is Jesus saying this? Because these Jewish leaders of his day, these scholars who spend every day studying the scriptures, would claim that they believe that the Tanakh is the word of God. And yet that word of God, Jesus just said in Luke 24, points to him. It all prophesied his coming, his death, his resurrection. He is God incarnate. And yet, despite that Tanakh pointing to Christ, the Jewish leaders of the day were rejecting Jesus. So Jesus is saying, you're rejecting me, the one who created you, the one who loves you, the one who's going to die for you. You're rejecting me. And so therefore, all of the guilt of the killing of these people will be heaped upon you. Now, our purposes today are not to talk more about that. Our purpose today, though, is to look at the scripture. Jesus, in that, right there in the middle, it's actually the start of verse 51, affirms the scriptures. It's found in that phrase, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. The Hebrew scriptures, the Tanakh, was structured differently than ours. We have 39 books. It starts with Pentateuch, history, wisdom, major prophets, minor prophets. Theirs was just those three sections. And they often took books of the Bible, and not that they combined them, we've actually kind of in a sense split them. So for instance, they do not have a first and second Samuel, they just have Samuel. They don't have first and second Kings, they just have Kings. They don't have Ezra and Nehemiah, it's, it's combined together, it's just Ezra. They do that with several of their things. And so they have 22 books. Some people believe that that was intentional because there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So theirs is structured differently. What Jesus just said in saying that the blood of Abel to Zechariah, the death of Abel happens at the hands of his brother Cain in Genesis 4. He's the first martyr. Zechariah dies in 2 Chronicles 24, and where that was placed in the Tanakh makes him the last of all the prophets killed. And in this sentence of such harsh words against the people of his day, Jesus affirms the Tanakh that the whole entire thing is God's word because all of it had been pointing to him. And so Jesus and the Jews of his day had this Tanakh and they believed it was God's word. And the content that we have today, even though it's structured differently, even though the number of books is different, basically the content that we have now is exactly what they had then. But Aaron, what about the Apocrypha? If you're not familiar with what the Apocrypha is, that word means hidden. Christians believe that there were 400 years where God did not speak to the people. 
between the ending of Malachi and the coming of Jesus. And so they believe that God did not speak through those 400 years. However, there were writings that happened. Some people believe that those writings were actually from God, but they had been hidden, but they've now been brought out and exposed. And some people believe that they can still teach us that they are also God-breathed. Now, many people do not include them as part of the Old Testament, so they have a separate section in their Bible, and they call it the Apocrypha. The Catholics have seven books in their, their Apocrypha. Orthodox churches have 12. Also, Catholics include extra chapters in Esther and Daniel, and Orthodox churches not only accept those chapters, they also add a Psalm 151. But why don't Protestants accept those? Because I'll be honest with you, if you read the Apocrypha, you're not going to hell. It's not like it's evil and and wrong. In fact, there's some good historical things in there. But why don't Protestants include them as well? Because they've proven to have several problems with them. Some of those problems include a lack of consistency with the rest of Scripture. For instance, one of the books in the uh, Apocrypha, the, uh, the book of Tobit, there's uh, one section where it basically encourages this act, and it, it's basically magic. It, it, as you read it, it almost sounds like trying to put together a witch's potion. That, that does not jive with the rest of Scripture. Also, in the book of Tobit, it teaches that salvation is by works, primarily through the giving of alms. If you do not give alms, you will not go to heaven. Right? Now, I think giving alms, helping the poor, very good thing. This is why we support Compassion International. We donate $5 on behalf of every single first-time guest that comes. And yet, that is not where our salvation is found. Our salvation is found in Jesus and Jesus alone, not through the giving of alms. Or how about in the book of Ecclesiasticus? This book is incredibly misogynistic. Incredibly. I mean, it, it is shocking to me that some people include this as God's word. Because it says that... Um, that women are to blame for sin, right? They throw it all on Eve, right? I'm pretty sure Adam was there too. And uh, Paul in 2 Timothy basically puts a little more blame on Adam because Eve was deceived. Adam was not. Adam knew exactly what he was doing and yet he still ate the fruit. And so I put more of the blame on Adam, even though Eve is at blame as well. But they, in, in class, Ecclesiasticus, all of it goes on women. Also, this one really breaks my heart. It says that, that daughters are a loss, I have two daughters. They are not a loss. They are a joy. I love them. Women bear the image of God. They are not a loss. And yet this is what Ecclesiasticus puts out. It's just not consistent with the rest of scripture. Also, some of these books have some historical inaccuracies. A couple of them do. Now, don't get me wrong. Like 1 Maccabees, very helpful. Like it explains some of the things that happened during that intertestamental period. So if you want to understand history of what took place between the ending of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew, go and read First and Second Maccabees. You'll learn what happened with the Jewish people. And some, some of it is where uh, the Jews get their whole thing of, of Hanukkah. Right? So it, it's really good to go and learn. However, some of the books, they have historical inaccuracies. And if you've got God who does not lie, who sees everything, he cannot, God, he cannot breathe through human authors these sort of inaccuracies. And, and so they, they cannot be accepted. Um, also, there are no internal claims within the Apocrypha that this is God's word. Last week, uh, as we were looking at evidence for the, the scripture, why we can rely upon it, we saw that both in the Old Testament and New Testament, um, there, there are these moments where this, the authors seem to indicate this is God's word. Now, readily admitted last week, and I'll admit it again, that could lead into circular reasoning. 
And yet, it's important to realize that the Bible at least claims that it's God's word. Not once in any of the apocryphal books do they claim to be God's word. In fact, in 1 Maccabees, at least three times, it goes on to say that there was not even a prophet in their day. They were waiting for a prophet. In fact, they're trying to set some things up for the prophet. Eventually, John the Baptist comes onto the scene to prepare the way for Jesus, the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. But they at least admit, we don't have a prophet in our day. God is not speaking to us. Also, and these are probably the, the two biggest reasons to me. First, the, uh, the Apocrypha is not accepted by the Jewish people. Right? They, I mean, Ezra and the great synagogue would have had access to some of this, and they don't include it. And even by the time you get to Jesus, all right, he's even after Ezra and the great synagogue. Not once does Jesus refer to anything out of the Apocrypha. He only does the Tanakh. And the biblical writers over 250 times refer back to the Old Testament. And not once do they, they quote from any work from that apocryphal period. All right, so these are several reasons why Protestants keep their Old Testament at 39 books and don't include this. Again, I don't think you're going to you know, be cast out by God if you go and read them. It's not evil. I just don't think that it is God-breathed. All right, New Testament. Some people believe, like Dan Brown, that the New Testament was put together sort of like a legislative bill. You got a bunch of old white guys in some back smoke-filled room, haggling on what to include and exclude, and eventually they've compromised enough, they've got their plan, they bring it forward to everyone and say, here is God's word. Some people believe that that smoky room was at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. It was there where they haggled, figured out which books to include, what kind of narrative do we want, and this is what we're going to present as the canon. However, we have a fragment. Last week we talked about manuscripts and fragments. We have a fragment written by one of the church fathers that basically records the 27 books of the New Testament of what was considered canon. And that fragment is from 170 AD. So 150 years before the Council of Nicaea even sat down together, there's already a sense of here is what is included in the scriptures. But what's interesting is as churches began to figure out what letters, what works, what writings do we use to help us navigate? Because remember, when Jesus left, they still only had the Old Testament. So that's all they were teaching from. But you have these apostles who'd spent three years with Jesus. So people were relying upon the apostles' teaching, but eventually they needed some of this recorded. And so some of these, you know, like Paul began to write things, Peter, James, as they wrote these things down, these circulated But then other works were also being written and being circulated. Which ones could they trust and which ones could they not? And so it was like this series of requirements came together. One of those requirements before they could accept something was authorship. It had to have been written by an apostle like Peter or Paul, or it had to be written by kind of like a direct, descendant isn't the right word, but someone connected to them. So like we've been studying the book of Mark. Here in two weeks, we're going to get back to the book of Mark and we're going to finish it up Finally, after, what, two years in the the book of Mark, we're going to go and finish up Mark. Mark was tied to Peter. So as we read Mark's account of the gospel of of Jesus, we're, in a sense, hearing from Peter. Or Paul, he was an apostle. We have most of his letters that comprises two-thirds of the New Testament, and yet Luke traveled with Paul. And so that's why the gospel of Luke is accepted, as well as the book of Acts. So it had to be written by an apostle or by one of their kind of like direct descendants, someone connected to them who could interview them. This means 
that most anything written in the second or third century would automatically be rejected. Because it could not have been written by an apostle. They, they passed away, nor by one of the people directly associated with them, because most of them had also passed away. Also, a lot of the works had eyewitness accounts that could speak into it. They were written close enough to when the events actually happened that people could have gone, no, actually, that's not right. That's not true. So that's why a lot of the later works end up being rejected. They had to be written in a certain amount of time because they had to be written by this certain group of people. Uh, Second, the book had to be accepted by the church. It, It means you couldn't have some hidden book suddenly appear you couldn't have just a minority of churches saying, no, this one's good, and everyone else, you know, well, oh, okay, I guess we'll include it. We want to be nice to you. No, there, there had to be this broad consensus. The whole church, in a sense, had to accept it. Uh, third, the book had to be consistent with the message of Jesus and the Old Testament. Uh, some people talk about the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, this is one of the first um, uh, pseudo-Gospels that gets rolled out and said, why, is it, why did they just stop at four? The Gospel of Thomas should be one of them. Well, in the Gospel of Thomas, it basically, supposedly, this is supposed to be a quote of Jesus, Jesus supposedly said that a woman has to become a man in order to be saved. Uh, again, Jesus died for men and women. All right? So ladies, you do not have to suddenly become a man in order to go to heaven. Right? You do not have to become a man in order for the image of God to come into you. Right? You are created. Male and female, he created them. It says in Genesis. So that is not consistent with the teaching of Scripture. So therefore, the Gospel of Thomas ends up being uh, rejected. And then lastly, uh, the book had to be accurate. Uh, again, we already said how um, uh, if, if God is God, then what he records is going to be historically accurate. Uh, in the, uh, the um, Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown puts forth the Gospel of Philip because it's in there where you supposedly learn that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married. However, the people connected with Jesus knew, no, he, he never married. He was never married. Like that is historically inaccurate. And so therefore it is automatically rejected. So despite what Dan Brown and, and other skeptics say, the Bible was not put together by a bunch of power-hungry guys in some back smoke-filled room where they, they haggled through things so they could put together the narrative that they wanted so that they could maintain control. Instead, it actually began to come together quite early in the, the life of the church. And it has maintained throughout all of these years. And there was just this broad consensus that this is from God. God's spirit has breathed this through these human authors. And we can read these and trust these because God has put this together to guide us in our matters, all matters of life and doctrine. Now, this does not mean that there weren't some controversies. I don't want to paint too rosy of a picture. There were questions on some of these. Probably in the New Testament, the biggest question was on Second Peter. It turns out that when churches were, you know, this letter's floating around, that there had been other works attributed to Peter. And it became pretty evident that it wasn't really from Peter. Like someone else wrote it and put Peter's name on it, trying to then forget it accepted. So when Second Peter was kind of making the rounds, there were some people going, oh, wait a second, is this just another one? Plus, the language, the feel, the style of Second Peter is just different enough from First Peter that it caused a lot of people to question. However, there seemed to be enough churches that accepted this. There seemed to be an understanding as they tried to figure out dating that First Peter was written earlier in his ministry and Second Peter way late, like right towards the end of his life, that that might explain some of the differences. And plus, they saw how accurate and even how consistent the message of Second Peter was, not only with First Peter, but throughout all of Scripture. Now, 
to hear that there was controversy causes some people to go, oh, wait a second. Like they, they take a step back. In fact, I think it should do the opposite for you. Rather than fill you with some doubt, I think that should actually cause your trust of the scriptures to increase. Because it means the early church did not just accept everything. Oh, another one written by Paul? Great, we'll just accept it. Like, they actually weighed these things out. In the book of Acts, there are a a group known as the Bereans. When Paul shows up, starts sharing the gospel with them, they didn't just go, oh, okay. They went back and they compared it to the Old Testament, to the Tanakh, weighed it to the scriptures. Is what he teaching consistent with what we see about the Messiah? And once they realized it was, they accepted it and became followers of Christ. That is what has continued through the church. The church has not just accepted anything and everything, nor has it just rejected everything because, ah, we just don't like that. They've really pondered it prayerfully, trying to assess, did God breathe this through his spirit into human authors so that they could write these down so that God would continue to guide us? So I'm convinced that you can take your English Bible, read the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the the New And read it with confidence, trusting that God has put this here for you to help direct you in all matters of life and doctrine. But it does bring us to one more question. Is the canon still open? Like, is is it really all done at 27? Or could God add more to it? And my answer to that is yes and no. Now, my no is much, much bigger than my yes. I say no because I really can't see a reason for God to write more to us. Like most pastors, most theologians, like the church in general just has the sense God's done writing. The reason I include a yes and it's a sliver of yes is because it's God's word. It's not my word. It's not the church's word. It's God's word. And so for if some reason God decided that he wanted to communicate something to his people to lead them, to guide them, to explain things further, I feel like that's his right. He does not have to come and ask me for permission. Now, God, I really like 66. I don't think you should add one more. If God wants to do it, he can do it. However, if he does it, it would be consistent with what is already there. It would be accurate And there would be this broad sense within the church, the global church, not just one tribe of Christianity, but the global church would have this sense of, yes, God is giving this to us. This is to be part of the canon. But to be honest, I don't see it happening. Now, I am not a prophet, but from where I stand, I think God has given us exactly what he wants us to have. Now, next week, we're going to conclude all of this because we've, we've seen that it's from God, why it's reliable, how it all came together. But now, next week, we're going to ask ourselves, why? Why did God write this? Why has he given us these 66 books? And I hope you'll come and hear that God has a purpose for it. And, and not just a purpose for his church, even a purpose for you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the, your scriptures. Thank you for how you put it together. Thank you that we can trust it. I pray you would help us to become people of the book, that we would read it. Lord, I pray for the skeptic that is listening to this. I fully recognize I do not have the uh, pedigree to give a a, a robust explanation. Uh, 
that, that there are scholars out there that disagree with me and, and probably could make a, a, a more, uh, uh, a better case than I. And yet, Lord, I pray you'd help open up the heart of the skeptic, that they would see that you have put this together, that there are exactly, that you've put in exactly what you want us to have, and we can trust it when we read it, when we study it, and we can measure our life and our doctrine to it. Lord, I pray, though, that you would create within us a greater hunger for your word, that we wouldn't just have confidence that it's your word and then leave it on the shelf, but that we would daily pick it up allowing your life-changing words to be inputted into us so that you might mold us and shape us into that image of Jesus. Father, I recognize that what we just did for these past 35, 40 minutes was a bit of an academic exercise. A lot of this was just for our heads. But Lord, I pray that you would take this and move it to our hearts, that it would just cause us to grow in our faith we can trust you so that when we come across books like the Da Vinci Code, we would find ourselves not wavering because we know that you have put together the word of God, your letter to us, because it is through there we hear about your love. We see Jesus who came to earth, lived a sinless life, but died in the sinner's place. So God, I pray that as we see the scriptures, we would be drawn to it, but we wouldn't just be drawn to these pages We'd be drawn to you, the one who wrote it, the one who breathed it into place, and the one who wants to breathe it into our lives. So God, open us up to you. Do in us what you want to through your word for your glory and for our joy. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray together. Amen.